Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. So let me take you on a trip. This is a dream, a virtual reality. It's immersive. There's a mouth. I feel like I'm a helicopter. Virtual reality will have its first billion-dollar year. Virtual reality. We've got new technology here now that needs to be used. It's action-packed. We're here at Time Equities, a luxury real estate developer that's using VR. Stroke rehabilitation, working with Parkinson's disease. With projected sales expected to skyrocket by 500%. How do you define real? It's terrifying. Everybody's talking about virtual reality. It's the buzzword. VR, VR, VR. Then through a new marvel of science. Virtual reality enables you to basically put yourself on planet Mars. I'd love to go to Mars. I'm Alison Balance. And I'm Simon Morton. And this is the science of virtual reality, also known as VR. Which is something I've never really had a go at. It's not a part of my life. And apart from gaming, what's it actually good for? Well, I know you're into birds. So how about you taking me to a virtual penguin colony. Oh, that's a great idea. You would love the sights and the sounds and the smells. Well, there's some really cool stuff happening in VR, both overseas and here in New Zealand. But what is VR? We perceive the world around us with our senses. We see it, we hear it, we feel it, we touch it, taste it, smell it. And virtual reality is about replacing those senses with with content that's generated by the computer. Now, our most dominant senses are our senses of sight and hearing. So in virtual reality, your vision and usually your hearing is completely surrounded by computer-generated content, sometimes even your sense of touch as well, so that everything you see and hear isn't real, but because it's dominating your vision and your hearing, you believe that it is real. You engage with it as if it was real because you kind of want to believe that it is. Dr. Wendy Powell is a reader in virtual reality at the University of Portsmouth. Professor Rob Lindemann leads the Human Interface Technology Lab at the University of Canterbury. Virtual reality is really this tight coupling between actions by the user and reaction of the system. So as I turn my head, the screens will update what I see. As I turn my head, the sounds that are happening on the right will also seem to move along with my head movement. So that's, that's just the visual piece. If I grab a virtual object with my real hand and I make the virtual object move realistically, so for example, if I put my hand into virtual water and I move it around, the water should move realistically as I would expect it to. And if the brain receives signals that it's expecting, then typically you have an effective virtual experience. 
when our brains are designed to fill in patterns all the time, we, we, we fill in missing information. So if you see somebody standing behind a desk, you don't see half a person, you fill in the gap, you know that the legs are there. And in the same way in virtual reality, we kind of fill in what we expect to see. So if we see something that looks familiar and our eyes are believing it and our ears are believing it, we kind of engage with it as if it is real. So if we can, from a just a stimulation point of view, feed the senses enough of the essence of the experience that we're trying to get at, the brain actually fills in the rest. You see people, when they're in virtual reality, really behaving as if they are in that space, even though they're just standing in the physical world. So it's about deception of our senses, but how does it trick our brains? Okay, have you seen a 3D film at the cinema before? Yes, I have. Okay, if you put your finger in front of your face, shut your right eye, left eye, right eye, left eye, you'll see that finger moving. Now that movement is what creates a 3D image because wearing the glasses you get separate signals to each eye and your brain tries to work it out and in doing so provides a 3D image. It's clever, isn't it? It is. But that's 3D, so what's different about VR? Well, virtual reality is immersive, so it replaces everything that you see normally with a virtual world because you're wearing goggles. And these head-mounted displays, they're equipped with sensors and trackers that work out where you are in a virtual world, and then you'll play that perspective. Now, I'm looking forward to experiencing this, and Rob Lindemann has a really simple VR experience that one of the students in the Human Interface Technology Lab has created. Apparently, it's a snow world, and I'll be surrounded by snow and pine trees, and the aim is to throw snowballs at snow people that will be coming towards me. I've got the headset on. I'm holding on to a pair of controllers for scooping up virtual snow. And she looks like she's in a wrestling ring. (laughs) Start the world now. Yep. Fans are on. Oh, here's snow. What we have here is a multi-sensory virtual reality system. We also have a raised floor that you stand on, and that um, actually provides shaking feeling. So we have low-frequency actuators that actually shake the floor. We also have 16 fans, and the idea is, in the virtual world, you see the wind blowing, you hear the wind blowing. Here you actually feel the wind as well. And the idea is that your primary senses are the visuals and audio that you'll have, but these secondary senses actually allow you to go a little bit deeper, so the immersion is a little bit more. And so the idea is that the sense of presence will be more strongly induced by providing these extra um, sensory feedback. That was quite funny. I was lost. Well, it I was had funny no idea what to do. <laughs> watching you out of context because you're making all these movements. Yeah. So what was it like? Well, I was so busy looking around at the scenery and experiencing the wind in my hair, I didn't actually get around to chucking any snowballs. <laughs> and I wasn't sure how much I could or should move around. So I failed to interact with it as much as I could have. And I kept wondering about how this would work if I was at home in my lounge. I mean, I could move the furniture out of the way so I didn't trip over it. But once I've got that headset on, I can't see the real world. And I was imagining what would happen if I was moving around and the cat came wandering past. Anyway, it may be new to me, but VR has been around for ages. Many people trace virtual reality's beginnings to a guy called Ivan Sutherland from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. 
and that was in the mid-1960s. Prior to that, there had been some work done in simulation. Uh, the military had done for a long time flight simulators back to what's called the Link simulators. And those were false airplanes that you would sit inside and they would be on motion platforms. They would be tilting and so on in response to what the pilot was doing. In the blind Link trainer, listening in his phones to the instructor's directions, he acquires the personal skill that will one day enable him to fly 600 miles over a darkened Europe to Germany. It took a, a lot of computing power and a lot of resources to actually make something that worked at that time. So if you fast forward a bit, the military got interested in this in the 70s and in the, into the 80s and into the 90s, as well as NASA. And so they have invested a lot of money in developing the technology to reduce the size, reduce the, the computational load, and so on. And so the devices started to become more and more accessible, though still expensive. So research labs could buy them. And then in the mid-90s, commercial versions of some of these devices started to come out. But the problem was not a lot of people bought them because there wasn't a lot of content for them. And then in the late 2010s is kind of when the, the current generation really started to emerge. Companies like Google and Facebook, which bought Oculus, and even Apple has talked about what they're going to do, as well as gaming companies. So there's three or four major players who are shipping these types of units. And there's competition over being better, faster, cheaper, and everything, as well as content being generated. So it's actually a sweet time to be in this now. So VR's been around all my life, but before my experience in Snow World, I'd never tried it. And I don't actually know anyone with a headset. And you do need the headset, right? You do, and they can be really expensive, but they also come free on the back of cereal packets. Then there are plastic headsets. They look a little bit like ski goggles, and you can pick those up for under $50, although you've got to strap a smartphone inside them. Then there's Samsung Gear. That costs nearly 200 bucks, and the catch is there, you'll need a Samsung phone. These all use lenses to distort the image to give you those two signals that I talked about earlier that give you that 3D representation. Then you get into the headsets and they get pricey. PlayStation, they've got one for $600. You'll need a console as well. HTC Vive and Oculus, they both sell for around the $1,500 mark and you can't even get the Oculus Rift here in New Zealand at the moment. Then there are the controllers which you need to control things in the game. They're a couple of hundred bucks and then you need a high-end PC to drive all the content. Sounds like you need to see your bank manager about taking out a mortgage. Well, maybe not if you actually bought some shares in the company selling these things. Revenue from virtual and augmented reality could reach $120 billion by 2020. Virtual reality. Virtual reality will have its first billion-dollar year in 2016. Virtual reality headsets will be all the craze this year, according to experts. The scope for virtual reality really is endless. There's only one problem. It's... Oh, God, it's frozen. <laughs> Let's park the technical stuff and look at how it's being used when it does work. And it does sometimes work. For example, storytellers, they're really excited about the power of VR. Peter Jackson and Richard Taylor, they're working with Magic Leap. It's developed a pair of glasses a bit like the Google Glass, and investors have dropped 1.4 billion US dollars so far into the project. They've also been working with Apple in creating a virtual world. I asked both Richard and Peter if they'd come on and have a chat about what they're working on, but they both declined. But luckily, one man who would talk to us about how VR's being used for storytelling is Gary Watson of Matariki, New Zealand. What we've seen with the 
translocation with the movement away from the marae, away from the rural environment into the urban environment, is having a profound impact. It's a negative impact on health and cultural identity. Using VR, we're now able to transport those kids back to their home marae. Many of them don't understand the kawa, the protocols to that marae, and because they don't want to embarrass themselves, they won't engage. But with a virtual reality, we can take them to the to the front door of that marae, and they can hear the karanga. And when they're then gathered inside the whānui, they're right there with their kaumātua, with their queer, and they will see the old carvings, you know, the whakārua that are around the whānui. And each of those is an ancestor or a kaitiaki. So you're re-engaging them back with that. And through the animation techniques that we now have available, we can literally bring those carvings to life. So you're taking them, you're transporting them back into uh, five generations, three generations ago. We've got new technology here now that needs to be used. VR's also being used for learning and entertainment. The NZSO were keen to do a VR experience to encourage new audiences to come and hear and see the orchestra. A virtual reality foreign language learning tool is helping secondary school students... Visit to be able to walk around the stage where 80 musicians play around you is just... Breathtaking. This week, Auckland Public Library's Storytime was transformed into an interactive moving picture book world with the launch of the first virtual reality film made in New Zealand. But gaming is where VR is really well established. The gaming sector, in terms of revenue, is bigger than the combined revenues of the film and music industries. It's massive. And traditionally, gamers have been prepared to spend the money to immerse themselves in a virtual world. And some of the games, they're getting pretty darn real. What I'm going to show you today is an application called The Climb. And this is a commercial application and one of the most compelling virtual experiences that I've ever done. You're basically climbing up a rock face with handholds and you use these controllers as your hands to actually climb up. Right, so the challenge now is what I'm going to climb, am I? And right, the fact that we can see what he's, he, wow, kind of what he's seeing as well. This is pretty amazing because there are small beetles crawling on the rock in front of me. I've got a big cliff over here. There are can birds. Can you hear anything? Yep, I can hear birds. There's a butterfly here. And shall I start climbing? I reckon you should. So I can see you've grabbed a couple of ledges. Yeah. Well, look down there, it's really freaky. <sighs> In virtual reality, your vision is dominated by lots of information that says you're a long way above the ground, you're standing on the edge of that virtual cliff. And it doesn't matter how much your brain logically knows that you're not, the visual information is what we use to dominate. If there's a threat coming towards us, we respond first and think about it afterwards. And the threat is you're about to fall. And so you do get that surge of adrenaline, that panic, that complete inability to take a step forwards. Even though you know you're standing on a solid floor, your brain is utterly convinced that if you take a step forwards, you're going to fall. And you see time after time, people in virtual reality in those sort of scenarios where they simply cannot convince themselves that it's safe to step because they think they're going to fall or their body responds as if they're going to fall. So the brain is just incredibly powerful. Oh. <laughs> oh. What just happened, Simon? Oh, I just fell off the cliff. That's what falling feels like. 
You okay? Yeah. <laughs> Take a deep uh. breath. <sighs> wow, I'm really, really hot. I can, my body temperatures increase, my pulse, I can feel I'm like there's adrenaline surging through the old body. So let me ask you a question. How realistic does this feel? That's pretty full on. Are you tired? I am. I you're, am. All you're doing is standing here. I know. I mean, how could you be tired if I you're just know. standing here? No, and I feel, I feel like How's I've your been heart? racing. In terms of simulating an environment, if I was to do that a number of times, I'd probably move through that section fairly confidently because I'd know what to do. So if an environment where I maybe was trying to defuse a bomb or maybe save someone in a medical situation. Yeah, or a fire rescue or yeah. something like this. I can see that that would allow me to pretty much go through that process and learn. That's right, so learn some of the key aspects. The danger that people fall into is they think this will replace traditional training. Instead of doing some of the things that you do in the physical training, you'll do them in VR, which airline pilots already do. A lot of their training is, is now done in simulators before they actually get in the plane. Sasha Kliakovich from the Waitamata District Health Board is using VR to train young doctors. Having been a junior doctor and being in these scenarios, when it does happen, you know, you're thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I'm the only doctor here. Well, where is, where is my backup? You know, so what we're wanting to teach these docs and nurses and anyone else for that matter is something's happened, how do I think logically through these steps? What are the things that I need to do to make sure that things are controlled and we're just doing the basic things really, really well? That's where the virtual reality tech came into mind because we thought, oh wow, this is really cool, it's a cheap production method, it's, it's a scalable model that allows us to get out to all of our junior docs quickly with um, relatively cheap headsets through mobile phone. Correct. We want to give one milligram of adrenaline straight after the second shot. We've actually Over built an app, and it has four emergency scenarios, these being CPR, anaphylaxis, hypoglycemia, and atrial fibrillation. So these are four emergency scenarios that they may encounter on their time on the wards. So as a junior doc, what this will allow you to do is you could take the app, and you just put it on your phone, put on a little headset which costs 2 $3, and away you go. You can now go ahead and choose another scenario. So virtual reality technology is already used to train pilots, surgeons, soldiers, bus drivers. But it's also a good way to train patients as well. Wendy Powell from the University of Portsmouth has been exploring how VR is used as a therapy. There's a type of therapy for phobias called exposure therapy, where when somebody's unnaturally afraid of something, they're treated by gradually exposing them to that fear, that phobia. And it's done in quite a safe, controlled way. But for example, if you're afraid of heights, it's very time consuming and not to mention not particularly safe to keep taking someone up to higher and higher cliffs. So in virtual reality, you can recreate that very powerful sensory experience and gradually expose somebody to a fear. And and they, in that setting where it's safe and they can be talked down from their panic and learn to, con learn to control their responses, they can start to treat very specific phobias using VR scenarios rather than taking people out into the real world. So that's where that very powerful visual stimulus has been used to great effect for well over a decade now. And kind of linked with that, 
in a, in a similar sort of way is something which has been in the news a lot recently, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which we're most familiar with, with kind of wounded servicemen. And there's some really excellent work being done in recreating some of the environments where the trauma happened, so virtual Iraq or virtual Afghanistan or Vietnam, and then taking people with PTSD through these kind of guided scenarios with a clinician taking them through them and helping them to kind of desensitise to the things that are triggering the PTSD. Hey Simon, you've had a go at spider therapy, haven't you? What was that like? Well, I had tarantulas on my hands and it was incredible because my brain was urging me to feel the little hairy legs crawling across my hands. Luckily, I'm not afraid of spiders, so I didn't freak out, but I could see how effective it was in terms of simulating having a real arachnid crawling on your skin. The power of VR to trick our brains isn't just useful for kind of anxieties and fears, but our experience of pain is very much modulated by what happens in our brain. In fact, quite interestingly, we don't feel pain in, in our kind of fingers or toes or anywhere in our body at all. We, we get a signal there, but we interpret it as pain in the brain. And again, VR seems to be able to do something incredibly powerful when we're experiencing pain. When people are immersed in VR, there's a diminishing of the activity in the areas of the brain that deal with pain and whether that's because of distraction or whether because the VR is doing something quite profound in the brain we still don't know but what we do know is that the activity in the pain centers decreases and even in a situation for example it's been tested with um, inpatients children with very severe burns if they're immersed in interactive VR while their dressings are being changed their pain medications can be reduced and their experience of pain is massively reduced even in these excruciatingly painful procedures. So it's really good at helping you deal with terrible things like pain. Could it also help you get up off the couch and be a bit more physically active? If you've got somebody walking in VR who's perhaps a little bit anxious that if they walk faster, they're going to be in pain, but they need to walk faster for their therapy, what we can do is to slow down what's happening in VR. So as they walk, we, we use treadmills quite often. So as they walk on a treadmill, we'll slow down the way they seem to be moving in VR. And because our visual system is so dominant, they interpret that as if they're walking slower than they are. So that does two things. One, it actually speeds up their walking because they have a comfortable walking pace and they don't know they've speeded up. But also, because they don't know they've speeded up, it doesn't trigger that kind of pain, anxiety, panic cycle. And so you can get much better walking out of them without them even realising they're doing it. So it's certainly looking really promising. So stroke rehabilitation, working with Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy. It's used a lot in military rehabilitation for, from complex trauma. So lots and lots of applications where VR seems to be really helpful for physical rehabilitation. Well, another application is for disease prevention and health education. And Gary Watson from Matariki, New Zealand, is working with the Morris Wilkins Centre as part of its Sugar in Schools study. Now, they're using VR as a way to help fight the problem of type 2 diabetes among Māori. We decided that we would see if we could use VR as a way of educating the kids on how type 2 diabetes impacts on them. So we've developed a program where we educate the children, we capture them first and we uffy them using a mentor so they're in a safe environment. 
and then we show them what are the implications of um, hypoglycemia, et cetera. What does that sugar do? And we are able to animate that and take people on an inner body experience so they can see what happens when the sugar goes through their system and the impact that it has on the liver. It takes them into themselves. And then coming out of that, we can then show them how they can, if by changing their behavior and with the support that they've got with the traditional foods, et cetera, that we used to have, we can change their behavior, change their whole way of life through that medium. What's really important in VR to make it effective is something called presence. And it's a way of describing how physically present you feel in a virtual world. So, for example, earlier on when I was rock climbing, I was definitely there on that cliff. I had an experience and I reacted both physically and emotionally. Now, it's this emotional response that has advertisers and sellers salivating. And if you hop onto YouTube's virtual reality channel, Everyone there is so, so welcoming. Welcome aboard Carnival Cruise Line. Welcome to the world's tallest roller coaster. Welcome to the University of Waikato. Kia ora, and welcome to Air New Zealand's virtual flight lab. Hi there, welcome to Amsterdam. Welcome to Corinth Pipeworks. Check out, I'm in VR, so take a look around. You've got Santa Monica Pier. Now it's changing the real estate market. We're here at Time Equities, a luxury real estate developer that's using VR to help potential clients see spaces before they're even built. Imagine no more open homes, and if they can crack the smell thing, ah, the aroma of freshly baked bread, coffee, beamed right into your headset. Well, they may have cracked smell because they're doing research at the University of Canterbury where they're putting a headset on someone and they are feeding them plain yoghurt. But in the headset, they're seeing chocolate yoghurt and they're squirting chocolate aroma into their nostrils and they think they're eating the chocolate stuff. What about our other senses, though, like touch? If I was in our virtual penguin colony, could I feel a penguin brushing up against me? The sense of touch is actually very, very hard to do in virtual reality. We are visually dominant animals. So people are are visually dominant. If I can give somebody a visual of the weight of something or or how something is moving, I don't actually need to give them a perfect simulation of the touch that they're going to feel because the brain will fill in the difference between what they're seeing and what they're feeling. And so what we've done is developed a wearable vest that has... Um, uh, small elements that will vibrate if you um, apply a voltage. So you send power to them and they shake. The more power you send, the more they shake. And you can grab this. Okay, I'm putting on a belt unit here. A bit like a weightlifting belt and a bit of Velcro around there for the tummy tuck. And so this today on a very basic level happens with something like a game controller where it vibrates, you get that, that feedback. That's right, it's actually the exact same technology except we've taken 16 of them. Oh, 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 oh. That's all of them, that's all of them. I feel like I'm a helicopter. Oh. Sounds like a swarm of bees. Oh gosh, that's really weird. So fast forward in the future, I'll be able to download this experience stick on my headset, hear the environment, see the environment, feel the environment because of these things that are shaking in my body and maybe right. even taste it. That's right, or smell it. There's, there's all this technology that's just 20 minutes away, as they say, right? The question is, do they really add something? Do they add enough? And that's the science we're working on now is to figure out how can these things be added and do they really make a difference? 
There's lots happening in research and academia. But what's hot in the commercial world, Simon? And I'm thinking Pokemon Go, that was a huge hit. Was that VR? Well, it was a huge hit, but technically, no, it wasn't VR. It was something called AR, or augmented reality, also known as mixed reality. And essentially, the difference here is that you are looking at the real world, but you're overlaying virtual objects. So in the Pokemon Go scenario, you remember when it was a hit over a year ago now, people were running around the old parks holding their smartphones and they were looking at Pokemons on the screens of their smartphones overlaid onto the real world. And that's the key difference. So it's a it's a flavour of virtual reality. One outfit banking on AR and VR is Atai. They're a company with 50 people based here in New Zealand. There are 20 more in the US and they're making content specifically for the AR and VR platforms. They're about to turn me into a hologram. So we're walking into our main green screen stage. So the idea of using green is so you can mask it out. It's like a standard uh, production thing in film. So to capture anybody in virtual reality, you need a lot of cameras. Patrick Seville from Atai. We have a full array of 360 cameras with lots of light. So I'm just going to show you the stage now. We have lighting banks all over, and we have the rigs of cameras. So if we walk into the stage... This is serious infrastructure, isn't it? This is a lot of years of work to get this thing working. You guys specialise, though, in taking individuals, people, humans, into this VR environment, and that's what's fundamentally different about this rig, and I guess about other people that are making VR content. You can just buy a VR camera and go and film a hill or a mountain or a beach and create 360-degree footage. This is different, isn't it? This is almost the exact opposite of 360. So 360 is when you're standing still looking around you. This is standing outside looking in. So we can capture a human volumetrically, is what we like to say. So the full volume of a human, so you can walk around them in VR instead of looking outside. So once you have a volumetric representation of me, yes. which we can call a hologram. Yeah, we can call it a hologram. Yeah, so anybody who comes in, any object that comes in, we can recreate in VR. So the plan is today you're going to have a go at sort of volumetrically capturing... You. Me. Yes. All right. Nothing, well, nothing will happen, no x-rays, no lasers. Before Simon meets himself, Atai have developed a VR experience for NASA. And I'm jealous because he's going to get to meet an astronaut. I'm Buzz Aldrin. I was honoured to be a member of the first crew to set foot on the moon in 1969. My colleagues on that historic Apollo 11. Now this is intriguing because as I move around this virtual reality setting, Buzz Aldrin here is actually holding my gaze. So he is working out where I am and this is fundamentally different to any VR experience I've had before because when I look around 360 degrees, I get that normal 360 degree perspective, but suddenly there's a human in this scene who is actually engaging with me. That's amazing. Of all the VR experiences I've had, that's fundamentally different because I have an individual there, Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, imagine schools where you actually get an astronaut to come and talk to you and you're actually there. Eight eyes, Owen Evans. This is the future of of entertainment. We fully believe that. Not just entertainment, but education and various other forms of communication, really. How far are we away from that individual interacting with my... what I do? Like, I poked buzz there and he kept (laughs) chatting to me and was very accommodating it takes a little bit more programming and a little bit more engineering time to actually create those 
those interactive experiences like games, but they're certainly available right now. They're not mainstream yet. A lot of virtual reality equipment still requires high-end refresh rates in front of your eyes. Um, you know, early stories were all about people getting sick, people getting motion sickness. Uh, a lot of that came down to refresh rates or the way that people were programming experiences. It, it does come down to computing and compute power, but that's just a matter of time before things become smaller, more compressed, more available. So Patrick, I'm going to stick on the headset and this is a 3D volumetric representation of myself. This feels slightly weird. Yes. Turn I'm around. Turn around and there I am. Wow, can I move around? Yes, you can fully move. <laughs> That's super soft. Now they say TV puts uh, 10 pounds on you, but I've got to say this guy's a bit smaller. He's uh yes. quite like yeah, he Relatively, but look at the detail. So you've sadly even got the hairs on the back of my neck. You can see the laces on my shoes, the crinkles on my trousers, and even my beard. You can actually see almost the individual hairs. It is wow. life. That sounded fun, but is it still a bit niche? We've been hearing about some great specialised applications. I can really understand how... Helping you deal with phobias would be a really good use for it. Taking urban Māori back to the marae, the storytelling aspects of it are great. But I'm still not seeing how it's going to affect me in my day-to-day life. For Joe Blogs on the street, most most people have a, have a smartphone. I'm very aware that not everybody does, but a lot of people have smartphones. And they're all going to be augmented reality enabled within the next two years. At a, at a conservative estimate. So we fully believe that there'll be so many more uses for augmented reality over those two years while we wait for virtual reality to catch up, if you like, um, in terms of accessibility and price point. It's not cheap at the moment to create a machine that can run a Vive. It's just out of the realms of possibility for a few people. But we've seen things like the PlayStation VR selling a million units. It's not it's not just a flash in the pan. This is something that's definitely here to stay, and people just want more content. The virtual reality movement has, is, is only fledgling at the moment. It's only a few companies around the world paying close attention, but some of them are the biggest companies in the world as well. So while it's small, it's certainly got the big players interested. So we've got people like Microsoft and Google and Apple and any other big name that you can think of down to the chip makers you know when you've got chip makers interested in the technology then you know that that's going to be driving the future there's squillions of dollars being invested into vr and ar but still no obvious killer app you're right and i can't help but feel that those headsets those devices will always be a barrier they're expensive and they're clunky But AR sounds like it's here to stay. We've had millions of people playing Pokemon Go. And actually, the idea of teleporting my mum into my kitchen in AR for a cuppa, I'd buy that. Yeah, but I'm not convinced that my virtual penguin colony is going to be a reality anytime soon, particularly not that ability to smell things and feel things. It's interesting because the future of AR and VR could be happening right here in New Zealand. That's true, but I still think it's a solution looking for a problem. Yeah, but what about some of the cool things we've looked at, like health, like learning, like training young doctors? Yeah, but I keep hearing VR's been around a really long time. And it's going to be a big hit any time, any moment. 
just like the Science Off podcast. Hey, thanks for listening. He's Simon Wolfen. And she's Alison Balance, and you've been listening to the Science of Virtual Reality. Next time, we're looking at the science of vitamin C. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a rating because the more ratings we get, the more people end up listening to the podcast. You can also find us at rnz.co.nz. Look under podcasts and series. Cheerio. Cheerio.